0: As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. Any room for priests, monks, and nuns in an atheistic world? A talk by Father Pius Mary Noonan at the Christopher Dawson Center for Cultural Studies 2018 Colloquium. So as I was preparing it, uh, the first thing that came to my mind was... uh, So in this atheistic world, Lenin's world, whatever you want to call it, um, if there's no place for God, well, how could there possibly be a place for people whose life is entirely given to God? And um, so so there, I got to thinking, well, um, there certainly is a place for for monks and nuns in the world. Uh, It's essential, because without them, the world will disintegrate completely. Um, But then, the final part of that would be, well, for the people who are here listening and people who might read this intervention, they perhaps need to be a little bit uh, make, uh, clear to them what monastic life is, because uh, especially here in Australia, there are not many monasteries, uh, even though the first Archbishop of Sydney was a Benedictine. Uh, we can't say that monastic life has ever had a big success in Australia. So um, let me begin with a story. It was my first Christmas Eve in Tasmania. At a time when I was doing some of the groundwork in preparation for the National Foundation, I was uh, going for an early afternoon walk in Hobart, and I was as I was making my way down the sidewalk, I spotted two men, probably in their late twenties, early thirties, sitting in the grass, smoking and drinking as they conversed. They were intrigued by what they saw. A man walking down the street, wearing a long white robe a spectacle for sure. What are you? When I explained that I was a monk and that I spent a fair amount of time praying to God, one of them proceeded to explain that he was an atheist. Later in the conversation, I would discover that even though he did not believe or said he did not believe in God, he certainly did believe in Satan. And I actually got the clear impression that he was a big fan or partisan of Satan over God. At one stage in the conversation, I asked them if they knew what tomorrow was. And they did. They knew it was Christmas. So I asked, Do you, what, what's Christmas? And they knew that too, the birth of Jesus. So but then I asked if they knew why Jesus came into the world. And one of them replied, to make money. <laughs> <laughs> so after a moment of surprise, I tried to explain that actually Jesus came into the world in order to quote, St. John, dissolve the works of the devil. And this he did by teaching the practice of virtues, especially the virtues of humility and chastity. Well, that didn't sit very well. And our conversation soon came to an end. It reminded me of the word of Archbishop Fulton Sheen, atheism, nine times out of ten, is born through the womb of a bad conscience, mm-hmm. This disbelief is born of sin, not of reason. Mm-hmm. So as I was preparing this talk, I was reminded of that sad Christmas Eve encounter, which so dramatically describes the plight of modern man who lives without God, and drifts along, tossed about by his passions, a continual and all-too-easy prey to the ideology of the day that seek to use him and then discard him after having robbed him of his dignity. The kind of ideology that inspired John Lennon's Imagine, a pure utopia in which one blames religion for the ills of humanity when one has never been able to live up to the demands of true religion, which alone can give peace to a broken world. Lenin's world is the search for a paradise on earth that never existed and never will exist. It is the betrayal of the homo sapiens into the hands of the homo incipiens, <laughs> who, fallen from a state of divine intimacy, can now only wander aimlessly in the land of estrangement of himself, in which his pursuit of sensual satisfactions leaves him empty, sad, inclined to despair, prone to the realm of darkness. For indeed, when there is no spiritual principle to things, when man is not motivated by thirst for the absolute, then he is on a deadly spiral downwards, into the bottomless pit of unsuccessfully and frustratingly seeking to satisfy his instincts. But it doesn't stop there. It keeps going down and down to the world of darkness. For all evil is darkness. This is the judgment, writes St. John. The light has come into the world, and men loved darkness Mm. rather than light, for their works were evil. The dark presence that hovered recently over Hobart is a sad example. John Lennon sings Imagine all the people living for today. Living for today. Supposed to living for the tomorrow of eternity, this living just for what we can see and enjoy here and now, as do the animals. The tragedy is that to a large extent Lenin's dream has come true. Even if there are still many people, thank God, who profess and practice a religion, life is organized more and more, yet si as if there were no God. All that matters is matter, and whatever you need to do to satisfy your personal desires of the moment, that is good, as long as you do not interfere with your neighbor's attempt to do the same. For the moment in the West we are in a kind of twilight zone in which the progress of technology has made it possible for most people to enjoy lives of uninhibited search for leisure and pleasure while leaving God and eternity in the background. It, is, it has given the illusion that life without God is possible, for the material things that we used to ask God for are now given to us by our computers and our machines. But what will become of Lenin's dream the day technology, for whatever reason, fails? The extremely fragile stability of modern economy will one day crumble And then, what will become of that imaginary world? Lenin forgot a fundamental truth. People rarely kill for religious reasons. They most often kill to get something they don't have. People kill for money, they kill for a job, they kill for a lover. They even kill for food, drink and clothing when there's not enough of them to go around. And that scenario surely to come back. Many years ago, I was invited to address a gathering of young adults, and I took as my theme the purity of faith and the purity of morals. In that talk, I made a point of showing that faith and morals stand or fall together. One cannot have a solid faith in the living God, in His Son, Jesus Christ, and go on living a life immersed in the satisfaction of one's instincts. Conversely, it is impossible to live such a life and not survive at the purity of faith. That is precisely why the church from the very start was always very careful, even meticulous, about defining what we believe, for those definitions have far-reaching consequences on the way we live. If God is a slave master, then his adherents will duplicate that mentality, and other people will be treated like chattel, which is what happened in the Islamic world. If God is self-sacrificing love, then other persons become an object of merciful compassion, which is what ideally happens in a Christian world, even if, alas, many Christians do not live up to that standard. This essential correlation between faith and morals has been expressed in many ways by a number of great minds in recent times. But I know of none who has said it in so few and so powerful words, as St. Pius X who was Pope from 1903 to 1914? very rarely quoted uh, Pope, and I think for very significant reasons that's topic for another talk. Uh, in a little known letter written in 1910 to condemn the French social movement called Le Sillon, he wrote, there is no true civilization without a moral civilization. And there is no true moral civilization without the true religion, it is a proven truth, a historical fact." In other words, it is only by fidelity to the true God and His divinely revealed religion that humanity can live in accordance with the truth of its own being, and this in turn can alone ensure that the future of the world will be peaceful and harmonious, just as the absence of God and of His Church. Guarantees wars and conflicts. The liturgical oration for the Feast of Christ the King in the traditional Roman Missal makes this clear when it asks that, The families of the nations separated by the wound of sin may submit themselves to the sweet rule of Christ. It is only in the submission of the mind and heart to the truth of Christ that grace is given to establish peace and harm on earth. So what consequences can we draw from this? I suggest that we need to ask ourselves a few questions. First and foremost, do I really believe it? Is it part of my life? Or have I let my faith dwindle under the influence of the ambient spirit of living without God, which is inspired by cultural Marxism? In a world which has abandoned nearly all of its moral principles, a world in which we breathe on a daily basis the infected air of the times, for the days are evil, if we do not make an effort to react against it, we will be swept at all, like everybody else. As Chesterton astutely remarked, only what is dead flows with the current. (laughs) After having asked ourselves these questions, and answer them rightly, you would hope, we need then to start asking other people. A true believer is in many ways, perhaps especially today, required to become another Socrates. He must go about asking questions, questions which will provoke his contemporaries, forcing them to enter into themselves and think. Hard questions which demand hard answers and cannot be silenced. Questions which may very well lead the questioner to the same end as Socrates. Socrates lived in what in many respects was a pluralistic society. There were many gods and many opinions. But Socrates could not be tolerated, because Socrates would not keep quiet about the Absolute. As in our day, Socrates' age was one in which you can think and say anything you want except one thing. If you say there are moral absolutes, beware. All animals are equal, we are assured. But it isn't long before we learn that some animals are more equal than others. And so it is with everyone who truly believes, whose faith is not only in words but in deeds. And so that brings me to the heart of my considerations this afternoon concerning the religious fight. For those who are truly convinced, who are and want to remain on the right side of this battle, for there is a right side, and that's important because the victory already belongs to Christ, and only those who remain with Him in the heat of the battle will be crowned. There are today, as there have always been, two possible reactions. One is to continue plodding along, striving to found and raise a truly Christian family and form the men and women of tomorrow. It involves being out there in the public square, standing up for God, for Christ, for the moral order. This is done through writing, teaching, seeking to influence political life and the decisions that will affect the lives of many. I am personally convinced that we need many more those brave men and women who fearlessly remind our wayward world of the unchanging reality which is God and his eternal law. And at the same time, it's an opportunity to thank God for those that we already have among us, and there are many here today. But there is also another path, a path which the first generations of Christians discovered very quickly. It is the path of those who have been so deeply touched by the thought of the brevity of this ephemeral life, and the only definitive reality, which is eternity, that they decide to give their entire lives to God in prayer, silent adoration, hard work, and sacrifice, in order to secure their own salvation for sure, but also to be an example to others and a source of light and love that will influence the world in a Salvatidic way. Such is the category of men and women known to us as monks and nuns. And what I'm going to say here about the monks and the nuns uh, concerns also those who live celibacy for whatever reason. Uh, Philippa's remark about about celibacy, I think, was very pertinent, and I would not want to in any way... uh, conclude from our remarks here, that it's only monks and Nuns who have this, this privilege. However, uh, in the context of my talk, it is, uh, that's what I'm aiming at. For some here today, the thought might seem eccentric. Why go off into seclusion on the margin of society, grouped into houses that are, for all practical purposes, invisible to the eyes of the world? Should these not join ranks with the laity in their efforts to bring God back to the world? Everybody on the front lines. To answer that question, we need to know a little more about what monastic life is. And I would hope, by these few words, to open up a new vista, a new world, perhaps, for some, unsuspected and certainly unfashionable. In his first epistle, St. John tells the first generation of the faithful to be on their guard against what he calls the concupiscence of the flesh, the concupiscence of the eyes, and the pride of life, those three sources of unhealthy and unholy coveting which undermine the work of God in souls, and are precisely the three enemies which the religious vows of poverty, <coughs> chastity, and obedience counterattack <coughs> at the root. The religious life, especially its monastic form, is of its very essence, contrary to the essential <coughs> tenets of the world. What the world adores, it scorn. What the world loves, it hates. What the world promotes, it rejects. Why? Because, as St. Paul told the Corinthians, the fashion of this world is passing away. This world, which St. John tells us again, is seated entirely in wickedness. It is only by living the Gospel values to the full that religious souls can truly be the leaven in the dough, the grain of seed which, apparently insignificant, actually bears within itself all future life. The salt that gives savor to culture, the light that saves the growth from darkness. In a culture that is dying out, losing hope in itself and in its own posterity, the source of true renewal is found in those souls who stand firm amidst the whirlwind of contemporary culture, or rather, the lack thereof. (coughs) Even though I happen to be a Benedictine, the motto of the Carthusian order has always inspired me. Stat crux dum borbitur orbis, which we can translate, the cross stands motionless while the world goes around in circles. Only in fidelity to the one who died on the cross and taught us thereby the power of redemptive suffering, only through souls who accept to live that redemptive suffering to the full, renouncing even the illegitimate goods of human life, can the world be saved from the annihilation caused by the roaring waves of deviant, subhuman ideology. This is something the founders of all the religious orders understood so well. It is what inspired the first generations of anchorites to go out and live in the desert. It is what Saint Benedict led St. Benedict to leave Rome when a pr- prosperous life of fame and pleasure smiled upon his youth. It is what caused St. Francis and St. Dominic to embrace the evangelical poverty, which has been the hallmark of the mendicant orders ever since. It's what led St. Ignatius to place his future in the hands of the Son of God, offering his whole life to serve in the ranks of the sacred militia. It is what filled the monasteries and made them beacons of hope for the world. And it is today still what continues to inspire young men and women to forgo the freedom of a worldly life, to renounce the legitimate joys of marriage and parity the attractions of a career and belongings. It is what leads them to embrace what is hard for nature, solitude, penance, long hours of prayer, devout study of divine things, humble work that does not earn a salary but serves the needs of the community in which it is. Monastic life holds within it a profound mystery, a soul enamored of God and desirous of living in His presence. Crosses the threshold of a monastery door, taking cover under the shadow of God's wings, as it were, saying goodbye to loved ones and loved dreams, making an act of faith that the God who calls will not fail. The soul, like Abraham, being called to leave his home country and family, sets out on a journey, not knowing where he is going oblivious of where the path is leading and not really caring where it leads because he knows that it leads to God. One such a soul, once such a soul finds the courage to take that step, he finds himself in a world he had not dreamed of before. He discovers that though he is in solitude, he is not alone. Though he is poor, he is immensely enriched. Though he has given up the love of a woman, he has given unexpected insight into the love of the three divine Persons and the joys of fraternal charity, radiance of the divine love for which he is made and into which he longs to immerse himself. He realizes that religious life is essentially a love affair between Christ and the soul. And we could even say it is Christ chasing the soul, begging itself, and rewarding. Beyond measure, those who allow themselves to be seduced. The young man who leaves a world of unbridled freedom and finds himself in the ranks of a strictly ordered community life is astonished to realize that such apparent servitude is actually the greatest emancipation. The soul, by having its daily decisions made for it, is thus free to love God and serve Him, to go carefree through the verdant prairies of conventional life. An ancient monk expressed it this way quote, We are given the name of monk monos which means soul or unique because of the life of undivided unity by which, drawing back our mind from the distractions of many things, we thrust ourselves forward to union with God and the perfection of holy love. In the Benedictine community, the soul discovers something else, namely the undreamt of depths of that wellspring which is the sacred liturgy. It finds itself drawn more and more into the mystery of divine worship, the form of which the Church has received from God himself in the Psalms and in the other inspired texts of Holy Scripture. The monk, like the nun, finds himself seven times a day and once in the night admitted to join the angelic choirs in singing the praises of the triune God. The holy, holy, holy of the seraphim is no longer an expression, it is his life, a life now placed like incense on the hot coals of divine love, rising into the vaults of creation, ravishing the heart of God as it consumes the heart of the man who was blessed to have been chosen. This small army of men and women who spend their lives in cloisters standing for hours a day in their choir stalls, thus becomes the representative of humanity before God. In a world that forgets God, when it does not reject Him, the monk sings, he chants, he shouts with all his strength, God alone is good, God alone is holy, God alone is worthy to be served and praised. Let my life be consumed in that Holocaust, Let me lose my life, as long as by it a bit more love may be returned to the Sacred Heart, so that when he looks out over the world, at least there, in that humble choir stall, a heart may beat with pure, holy love of the Creator." Such a life is one of which our world is in dire need. The French author Paul Valéry once wrote that the day is fast coming when, in order to find free men, one will have to go into the cloisters. That thing I think has come. The light of civilization is disappearing over the horizon. <coughs> and humanity is now handed over to barbarians, whose ruthless dispatching of all we hold to be sacred has no parallel in recorded history. Just as the fall of the Roman Empire. So, not only faith, but also culture being preserved in the monasteries throughout the Dark Ages. so now, as we embark upon an even darker age, let us pray that the light of Christ, the light of God, will be kept aflame in monasteries, where growing numbers of monks and nuns will turn their backs on a decadent world, only to find that they have stepped into the enchanted world of peace, truth, love, and holiness. A universe in which the divine oxygen of purity and authentic virtue makes for a life truly fulfilled, filling to the brim every human desire. Then, and only then, will the tidal wave of ungodliness, worn out and reduced to nothingness by its own culture of death, fall. Then will armies of souls, purified by years of prayer and sacrifice, go forward, to help rebuild an authentic civilization in which love reigns because God reigns. Monks indeed are eschatological signs, <clears throat> signs of the eschaton, signs of the world to come. By their very existence, by their habit, their tonsure, they point to the end of time and beyond. They are the constant reminder that there is something else. There is someone else. There is not just this world as we see it. But a final question needs to be asked, and I will not venture a response. If, from the eyes of faith, such a life is essential to the world's survival, is there, in the eyes of the world, room for it? Will there really be tolerance for it in the future? We are seeing more and more that tolerance is a weapon in the hands of ideology. It is used to demand respect for wayward forms of life that the ancients proscribed, but when the promoters of such ideologies rise to power, there is not likely to be tolerance for those who believe and preach and teach and live moral absolutes. In a world of relativism, everything goes except the absolute. History has given us examples of religious, monks, and even nuns, ripped from behind their grills, persecuted, condemned, guillotined, for their refusal to bend the knee before the idol of the day. History repeats itself, and the descendants of the monsters that laid waste Europe in the mid-twentieth century have now spread their tentacles to the most remote corners of the world. We can expect rough times ahead. For all of us who stand with Jesus and His church, that we move forward fearlessly because we know that the victory belongs to the one who allowed Himself to be crucified. Love conquers the spiral of hate. Life comes after death, spring follows winter, and after the storm ensues a great calm. Thank you. <laughs> That was Father Pius Mary Noonan with Any Room for Priests, Monks and Nuns in an Atheistic World? This presentation was part of the Christopher Dawson Centre for Cultural Studies 2018 Colloquium on the theme, A World Without Christianity, which was hosted in Hobart, Australia. For more talks, interviews and shows, visit radio.org.au